I wish to talk to you today about Jesus as a much better high priest. The challenge I have is that our culture doesn't really understand a priest, but it is the best metaphor for what Jesus is. Our terminology of lawyer uh, may be the most similar, but it falls woefully short of what a high priest is. Uh, I am not your priest. Understand that. I am not your priest. Okay? I am a priest. You are a priest. But I am not your priest. There is only one who is your priest. And that is Jesus Christ. Uh, that is why we don't use such terminology uh, in our church, our worship, our community. Because Jesus is our priest and we are a priest. But Jesus is our priest. And so, to help you maybe get the idea of what a priest does, I, I, I want to talk to you about whitewater rafting. <laughs> uh, you know, when I lived in the mountains, I would uh, try to find an occasion or two to go whitewater rafting. And it was on one such journey, I was with uh, some friends, and we were going down the river, and at, toward the end, the guide suggested that uh, one of us shoot the bull. Uh, so, well, what exactly is that? I said, well, that's where one person will sit up at the very nose of the boat with the legs dangling into the water, and the rest of our team, the boat, will go to the very back, and we'll go down this rapids like this, and we'll see how long that person can stay. And so I said, that sounds fun. I'm in. <laughs> so, being wet, I'm still very light <laughs> indeed, but nonetheless, I get up on the front, and I held on to the handle as as hard as I could. Everybody else, well, about six of them, got in the back, in the very back. And so it was already looking up in the sky. And then when he hit the rapids, next thing I know, I'm in the air. And I'm thinking, where did the boat go? Uh, all I can see is, is sky, and then I'm in the water. And there are two important uh, things, or a person and a thing, that was instrumental in my life at that time one was a life preserver okay because i got in the water and it was freezing cold and you're shocked i mean you're shocked the fact that you're in the water and it's so cold and you, all you can do is just sit there and then i am very thankful that there is a guy that knew exactly what to do and grabbed me by that life preserver the next thing i know i'm in the boat freezing i think what just happened there you know it just happened so quick I would just present to you that what a priest does is the dual function of what that life preserver does as well as the guide. And that my life was resting in the hands of a life preserver and someone that knew what to do with that life preserver. And the life preserver's quality mattered. It mattered. It needed to be the right uh, size for my weight it needed to stay together. It needed to be able to support my weight as all of my body weight was resting on the fabric of this life preserver. Uh, it mattered. And I just want to share with you that what you have in Jesus Christ is so much better than a life preserver. So much better than a, a river guide. He is a great high priest, better than what history has ever known before. And it is important because it will preserve your eternal soul and physically, your life, 
It is important. And so let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. We, we started here last time, looked at the, the king of Christmas, how Jesus is identified as the, the priest king and the qualities of this priest king. And now we're going to focus, as the chapter rightfully does, focus on the priest aspect of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at verse 20 uh, and, and concentrate on verses 20 through 28. Uh, but know that this is in context of all that's going on before. In fact, all of the book of Hebrews up to this point has been hinting at Jesus as a high priest. That, and that is one of the most predominant metaphors of Jesus Christ in this book. Uh, titles is Jesus as high priest. In fact, let me just kind of give you a little a survey uh, and go through each chapter. There's a reference to Jesus as high priest. You don't have to turn all these, but just just listen as in Hebrews 1.3, it says, referring to Jesus, that he is one, has accomplished cleansing for sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That is what a priest does. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in the heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. We go on to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who have passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet Without sin, therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. Hebrews chapter five, verse one says, for every high priest is taken from among the people and appointed to represent them before God to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And then verse 10, he was designated by God as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter six, verse 19 and 20, it says that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Sure, steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain, where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf since he became a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so he's hinting at it. Every chapter we go, we see it. And now he's focusing on this idea that Jesus is high priest in chapter 7. And I wish to tell you three reasons why Jesus is a better high priest based on this passage. Now, if you look with me in verse 20, we'll start reading there. Um, my translation has the word and it. It in question is the better hope that we see in verse 19. The better hope, the new covenant through which we draw near to God. All right. So that's the it in question. Uh, and so let us uh, stand as we read together Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. This better hope was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and he's quoting now, Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues. Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. The first reason, as we look at verse 20, that Jesus is a better high priest is that he is a priest by oath. He is priest by the oath of God and not just the descent of lineage. And so we see that in verse 20, um, that it simply says that he became priest, that these priests were done, referring to Levitical priests of the Old Testament, they were done without an oath. But this one, verse 21, was made a priest with an oath, with an oath. By the one who said to him, and he's quoting that passage again from Psalm 110. Uh, David's talking, referring to the Messiah and say, this one is a priest and God has sworn him to be a priest. God's not going to change his mind on this. Now, verse 22, this is a, a good summary verse. All right. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Interesting, the word grammatically here, Jesus, is mentioned at the very end, putting great emphasis on Jesus, who he is. Now, this word guarantor is uh, is only time found in the New Testament right here. And is the idea of a pledge or security for a bell. Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to pledge to you. I am the guarantee of a better hope that you can draw near to God with. All right. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you were to go to a store, as you may have done the last few weeks, and were to purchase an item, they might have added or asked to add on a warranty uh, that if uh, if something was to happen to this product within this time frame, you could take it uh, back to the store and have it replaced so that it would not have this defect. Uh, now, what Jesus is saying is that he is the guarantee, he is the one, he is the warranty of a better covenant. What does this covenant do? It gives us hope so that we can draw near to God. Now, uh, you know, this is a, a little tool that some of you have uh, bought almost a couple years ago. Uh, this is a, a great little tool, and I wished it had, I wished I did a warranty on it. All right? Why? Well, um, if you can see this, you might see what I've been looking at for the last two years. Uh, every time I look at my calendar or make a phone call, or read emails, I have a nice cracked screen, all right? Now, why was this cracked? Well, because I am who I am, you know? Uh, things <laughs> uh, demand, uh, I demand a certain qui- quality of indestructibility around me, and, uh, you know, <clears throat> I just dropped it. I dropped it on my bicycle pedal, and bam! And here I have now, for the last two years, a cracked screen. I look forward to the day when I can get this replaced, uh, and I, I hope it'll happen shortly. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I thought, you know, why was I such a fool not to take those few dollars for the insurance? Because if I had the insurance, the warranty, all I could have done is just, bam, get it replaced. Don't I know myself well enough to realize that, hey, things are likely to break in my possession? Uh, but for whatever reasons, I, I, I collided with my cheapskate self and thought, no, I'm not going to spend a few dollars. Yeah, that's a few dollars. 
Uh, here's what here's what I've got here. Jesus is saying that he is the guarantee of a better hope whereby I can draw near to God. Now, that's important because I, I joke with people saying that this reflects my personality. I've got it customized. My Blackberry is customized to reflect me. I'm cracked. All right? I'm broken. And I'm thinking, you know, God's given me a new covenant. Here. Here's a hope. A better hope. You have now means to draw near to God. And what's the first thing I do with this new hope, this covenant, this way to draw near to God? I find a way to mess it up. I start living for myself instead. But Jesus is saying, you know, if you find a defect here, you can just bring it back to me and I will take care of it. I am your priest forever. I am the guarantor of a better covenant. I am the one that can make right the wrong. I can make right the wrong. And so here is a beautiful picture of Jesus as my guarantor. He is a better priest by oath of God. There is no revoking this status that Jesus is my high priest. Is done by oath. God's not going to change his mind. He cannot change his mind. He's sworn by himself that he will be my priest. But notice we see verse 23. Another reason why Jesus is a better priest. is He is a better priest by permanence. By permanence. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 23. He, the author is referring to the Levitical priest. and says, you know, these guys, they come and they go. They live and then they die and then they get a new guy. And so consequently, they have been many Former priests, many of them, because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. Verse 24, this one, Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. I mean, he died and he rose again and he lives forevermore. There is no ending to him. And so therefore, his role never ends. He is continually my priest. Verse 25, why is that important? Well, it's important that my priest never dies. I've looked at this last week because now he can save, verse 25, to the uttermost those who draw near to God. He can save to the uttermost. The uttermost has two ideas behind it. Uh, completely is, is one idea of uh, the totality. In other words, I am saved. My body, soul, and spirit, if it belongs to me, it can be saved. I am saved to the uttermost, but also has the idea of permanence. There is not a day and time when I will not be saved. It has the idea of completely both in totality and in permanence. And it could very well be that the Hebrew writer was implying both. So, those of us who have our hope in Jesus Christ, those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says beautifully, I am saved totally, completely. Forever, I am saved by uh, from God's wrath for my sin. I love this passage. And it says, now who is this too? He is able to save to the anonymous those who draw near to God. Those who draw near to God. That idea of draw near to God, it, the tense of it is a, is a present active. In other words, it's continuous in its nature. It's not those who once drew near to God, who at one time in their life did, but those who are characterized by their continuous drawing near to God. Okay? That's important for us to understand. Now, I love the New Testament because it tells me that I can draw near to God. If you look in the Old Testament and you read it, you see a lot of barriers to God. Let me just take you to Exodus for a little bit. You just follow with me. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and 12. 
This is, uh, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, set them apart today and tomorrow, make them wash their clothes, be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You must, notice, set boundaries for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourself not to go up to the mountain, nor touch its edge. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. So he says, we've got to put some boundaries up. And then we find in Exodus chapter 19, verse 20 and 22. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and solemnly warn the people, lest they force their way through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. You can't even look. And go to Exodus chapter 33, verse 3. Go up to land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, for you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. I read in the Old Testament, I see barriers. But I read the New Testament because of what Jesus did, where there once were barriers, Jesus says, draw near, draw near, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. So there is a better hope because there's a better priest, there's a better covenant that allows us to draw near to God. Now, verse 25 is just so precious. I hope you underline this, start, memorize it. It is such a beautiful passage. <clears throat> Let me read it again. Consequently, because he lives forever as my priest, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, forever, those who draw near to God through him. Through him. Jesus is our high priest. There is no way to God outside of Jesus because it is only Jesus who is our high priest. There is no other name under heaven whereby a man might be saved because no one is volunteering to be our priest. No one's volunteering to satisfy the God's wrath for our sin outside of Jesus Christ. Now, how does this happen? How is he saving completely through him, those who draw near to God? Well, he always lives. He always lives to make intercession for them. I love that. I cannot. I, I hope I hope I hope the Holy Spirit will convey to you. And that you will experience the same encouragement and more that I have felt by reading this. That Jesus is always living to make intercession for me and for you. He is in God's throne room and the throne room of grace. And he is interceding on your behalf and my behalf. And I have to ask, and I know you have to ask, what is he interceding for? What, what does he pray? I mean, curiosity got me here. What, Jesus, what are you praying? And so I looked through some scriptures to see what Jesus might be praying for. And let me just share with you some. Um, first of all, Romans 8.27, along these same lines. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not only is Jesus interceding for me, the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, who is the Spirit of God, is also interceding for me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're for me. They're praying for me. And now we have Romans 8.34, who is to get condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is of the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, let's go to John chapter 17. If you'll turn, just keep your Bibles, your fingers in your Bibles in Hebrews. But go to John chapter 17. John 17 is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed with his disciples before, uh, before the, cru- the cross. And it gives us an idea. Not only was he praying for them, but he was praying for us at that same time. This gives me a good idea of what he might be praying for even 
today for you. What is Jesus praying for? Well, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given them. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I think that I read this and I think Jesus is praying that I will know eternal life. Do you understand by reading this, eternal life is not just going to some heavenly place when you die. Eternal life, Jesus says, is knowing God. Knowing the eternal one to be able to respond to the eternal one. And it is only heightened when we die. If your joy in this life is to know God, then death is gain. But if your joy in this life is not to know God, then death is loss. That's what it means to experience eternal life. That's why it's important to have your hopes set in Christ. To live for him, to make him your passion, because I have no hope for you in death unless you have hope for him in life. To know him. Jesus is praying, Jared, God, I hope Jared knows your eternal life. I, I pray that he knows you, knows this eternal life. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I am come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus is praying for Miss Margie. Keep her in your name. Jesus is praying for Shane. Keep him in your name. Jesus is praying for me. Keep Jared in his name. That they may be one. Even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I think this is one of the things that God is praying for. That's why we prayed, God, let us know your joy. Jesus is praying to God, let them know your joy. Let the joy be fulfilled in them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying even today that he will keep Carlos from the evil one. Isn't that beautiful? In the time of temptation, Jesus is praying, God, keep Jared from the evil one. In 2010, whether I'm alive or dead, Jesus is praying for me. (laughs) It doesn't matter whether I live or die. Jesus is interceding on my behalf. He's praying for me. And then we keep on reading. Verse 
Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying, set them apart in truth. Let them be different from this world. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not, listen, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and that's me. He's praying for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for a sharing of our life with God. That there is an intimacy found with God, and so consequently we can find with one another. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Do you understand that in, in your deathbed, when you're sitting there and you're thinking, my life is about to end, my heartbeat is going to stop any second and breathing is getting awfully hard and I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be like when my breathing stops and my heart stops and I lose consciousness of this life. But this I know, Jesus is praying that when that time comes, I'm going to be with him. Ha! <laughs> What kind of strength do you need other than that Jesus is praying for you that this would come true in your life? That's a beautiful thing. And we keep on reading here. It says, I forgot where I was at. Well, let's start with verse 21. I and them, and, or 23, and you and me, that they may be one, perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even, the world, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus is praying as he prayed then, he continues to pray that the love of the Father would be in you that you would share your life with God to know an intimacy with God that there would be a oneness there, that there will you know the joy that is there that, that you will be with him to see the glory of God, that you will meanwhile experience what it is to know God in this life this is eternal life, this is what God is praying that Though he is in the world, he's not praying that it will be removed out of the world, but that it would be different from this world. And so when I'm sitting here the, and my children are sitting there with the pressures of, of the world and society around them, and I'm thinking, God, I pray that my children would not be like the society around them. Lord, help me not to be like the society around them. I take comfort in knowing that Jesus is praying the same thing. <laughs> be a great prayer partner with Jesus. I keep on reading. What else, what else is, is he praying for? Luke, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus is, is meeting with, with Peter. It's, about the, it's close to the end to his crucifixion. Jesus knows, has some idea what's going to happen. Verse 31, he tells him, Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's scary. Don't be surprised if Satan has demanded your life. 
to sift you like wheat. It's just that Jesus hasn't told you right before it happened. He's told you 2,000 years before it happened. Satan has demanded you. Verse 32. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You say, well, that didn't really work now, did it, Pastor? Seems like as I remember the story, Peter consequently then went out, though boasting, and denied Jesus three times his knowledge of him and even cursed in doing so at the time when he was most needed. That doesn't seem like his faith was really great there. (laughs) Notice what he says. Continues in what he says. Verse 32, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that there would be this lapse in the faith of Peter. But Jesus wasn't measuring the faith of Jesus with that one instant. What he was looking for was the reaction. Because it is like us and is like Peter for us to fail. But what matters is our reaction to the failure. The righteous person will fall seven times but get up again. Peter, though may fall, the question is, Jesus is praying for, will you get up again? I'm praying that you will. And I'm so confident in my prayer, I'm going to give you a word of instruction when you return. When you return, Peter, because I know you will because I'm praying for it. When you will return, strengthen your brothers. I find a lot of hope in that passage right there. Because I look in 2010, and I'm thinking, if 2010 is anything like 29, and all the years prior, there were going to be some moments of huge pain in my life, of failure, of lapses of unbelief, of selfishness, of my own nature coming out, And I will be ashamed of myself. There will be moments like that. But I know just as sure as there will be moments like that. Because I believe this word. That I believe there also will be moments of. God forgive me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus saying I have forgiven you. And let me strengthen your faith. And let me help you repent. And let me help you be one with me. And let me help in help you strengthen your brothers and sisters. Let me help you get out of the mire that you've made for yourself. That is the story that we have as believers. That's why I said godliness is not just just merely the, the absence of sin, but godliness is really more the abundance of repentance that God says to Peter, I know you're going to sin, but I know there's going to be repentance in your life and there's going to be a renewing of your faith because I'm praying for that. Could it be that even today Jesus is praying in the heavenly throne room, by name for you, and says, I pray that they will be strengthened and that they will rise up again. Satan has demanded their life, but I am praying for them that their faith will not fail. First John chapter 2, verse 1 and 6, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The righteous. Isn't that wonderful? 
There's going to be sin in your life, but there's going to be a propitiation for us. There's going to be an advocate for us. And I've explained this before, that this is the ongoing working of Jesus Christ in his saving us. Okay? Yes, there was the death on the cross where he became the propitiation, but there is the ongoing, continuing, interceding on uh, on our behalf before God the Father that our sins will be forgiven and that we will be continually made right with God. So even when I am sinning, I'm not even aware of it, there is one who is aware of my heart who is interceding on my behalf. So what is the point of confession? Why do we confess our sins? I've shared with you before. We confess our sins not to make sure that our security is right with God, our, our, our position is right with God. We confess our sins to make sure that our fellowship is right with God and that we are on the same page with God. And because we are in position as children, we will confess our sins. It is a work that God is doing in our life. And it is a necessary part of us to follow Christ to confess our sins and following Him. But it is necessary and it is the work of Christ interceding on our behalf that saves us. Do you understand that? The difference there? I just love that passage. I could just camp on this and I think, you know, whatever 2010 comes, if it's prosperity and I've just got all kinds of stuff, God is praying on my behalf that I will not grab hold of these possessions and that if I do and make my identity in these possessions that I will be convicted of it and repent so that my heart will stay true. If 2010 instead gives me famine, God is going to pray that my faith would not fail and that I will trust in God and that I will not resort to stealing and other things that are outside of God's means and that I can glorify God in the midst of my famine. That if it's in health, that I can use my health, God is praying for it, that I will bring glory to God and intimacy with Him. Is If it is in, in physically being wrecked, that God is praying for my faith, that it would not fail in that time. That whatever 2010 comes, Jesus is on the throne. By the end of 2010, He is still on the throne. And the year after that, when I wake up each day, whether it's good or bad, Jesus is praying on my behalf that my faith would not fail, that my joy would be full, that my love of God would be in my life, and that I would be sharing my life with Him and drawing near to Him in that day. So verse 26, two good reasons why Jesus is a better high priest. One, by oath, uh, then one, the second one by permanence. The third, he is a better priest by character. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He goes on listing out some of the qualities of this high priest. Holy, innocent, or blameless, unstained, has no moral contamination. That's important. He's separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. There's not one hint of disobedience to God. There's not one hint of disagreement with God in his character and his essence. That matters. Not even having .0001% in him. You think, well, that's small. Why are you making a big deal? Well, you know, what if I share with you there is .001% of cancer in your body? Would that bother you? <laughs> that was just a small percentage. But that bothers you, doesn't it? Because it's cancer. Okay? You know that whole rule? Uh, five second rule? 
that only depends on what it falls in. All right? What it's in matters. All right? Just a little bit. But what we have here is that he is unstained. No moral contamination whatsoever, holy, innocent, separated from sinners, consequently exalted above the heavens. Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 1 Peter 2, 22, a companion with Jesus said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. John 8, 46, Jesus made a challenge to his enemies and says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? And they could not. They could not. So why does that matter? Verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. I don't have to worry about whether Jesus is getting his life right and whether he can be a good high priest or not. He is. He is. He is everything that God is looking for and satisfying his wrath for me. Remember the integrity matters when it comes to life preservers? Well, Jesus is fits your weight classification. Whatever it is, he fits your weight classification. It will satisfy no matter the turbulent storms and rages of, of the rapids around you. He fits the bill. He can handle it as your high priest. For the law, verse 28, appoints men and their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which comes later in the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This means that our salvation is secure only as Christ's priesthood is indestructible. And that's why I need a great high priest. Because my salvation, my life, is dependent on this priest, this life preserver that is atoning, that is advocating for me before God the Father. Now, notice the qualification in here. This hope is for those who draw near to God. Do you understand? You may be thinking, you know, that doesn't really identify me. If I was to ask you right now, on a scale from 1 to 10, your life right now, this day right now, where are you at? 10 being drawing near to God and 1 being drawing away from God. Which which point are you at in your life this day? Now, you need to know that if you're not drawing near to God, you're drawing away from God. So it's kind of like either one or ten, unfortunately. There's not that five. I'm five. No. Either you're drawing near to God or you're drawing away from God. Which one are you? You need to know if you are not drawing near to God, Jesus is interceding even now. That you would draw near to him. That you would draw near to him. I pray that there is a holy discontent in your heart. If you're not drawing near to God. That there is a dissatisfaction. That there's, there's a, a desire within you that says, I just, I just want to get it right. I just want to make sure my life is right. I pray that that is a desire that will not stop. And will grow in this intensity in your heart and your life. If you do not have that desire that discontent, and you're drawing away from God, I'm very concerned for you. I'm very concerned for you. But you could care less, and you'll go on with your day, unfortunately. 
Here's the good news. Some of you are thinking, you know what? I'm not drawing near to God. And I don't know if I want to, but I want to want to. (laughs) Do you know you could want to want to? If that's where you're at, then that's enough to pray with right now. God, I want to want to draw near to you. I want my desires changed. Will you do that? And that's the type of thing God can do. He is a high priest that has that capacity. I can think of nothing better than end this year and start next with saying to God, God, I'm not happy with who I am. I cannot say I'm experiencing this eternal life of knowing you each day. God, will you change me? Will you forgive me of my selfish, self-oriented ways? I need a new way of living. I need this eternal life. I need forgiveness of my sin. And God, I need my desires different. Can you change me? Start there. Start there and ask God to be your king. Because you may want to be a high priest, but you need to remember he's also a king. He's not going to be just a high priest unless he's also the king. He's not going to separate himself. Will you make him your king? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.